I invite you to open your Bibles to the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, as this morning we resume uh, and begin uh, to uh, end a, a, a series that we began in the uh, fall of 2021 uh, with a few breaks during summertime and uh, uh, as well as um, during the Advent season as well. Uh, but the Wonderful letter to the Hebrews, uh, a uh, a letter that is, or at least a, a book of the Bible that is known by Bible scholars as a sermonic letter. In other words, it is a letter, but it doesn't carry the qualities of a letter. In other words, we it doesn't say, you know, dear so and so. We're not told, but you can uh, certainly glean from it who uh, the letter is written to, and nor is it signed. So we're not clear as who the author is. Many theories abound, and we won't go into those uh, today, uh, but uh, there's theories abound. But when, in the end, we, we don't know. We don't know who the author was. Uh, but what we do know is that the author was somebody who loved Jesus Christ, uh, one of those who also had come to know Jesus Christ to experience the, the joy and the comfort that belongs to us as we are resting and trusting in him. Uh, we read this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us through this word that you have recorded and have passed to generations, a millennium of believers throughout the world. Let these message, this message and these exhortations uh, shape not only our mind, but our values. Let them encourage us in the way that we are to go and lead us to repent in ways that we have wandered. But Lord, above all, may they continually be at work connecting us to you. For apart from you, we can do nothing but in Christ. As we are the branches, Christ being the vine, he is producing fruit in us and through us. And so let that be true now. May we hear, may we consider these words, and may it be an act of worship to you, for we honor you by recognizing you have spoken, and you are speaking even now, more through your Spirit than even me, as I have the privilege to preach. Lord, bless us to be a blessing to those around us, and to honor you. We pray this in the incomparable name of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer King. Amen. It's possible that you've heard the story of a young boy who attended church, a church service for the first time. The young boy grew up in a family that did not attend church. The family had moved around somewhat, somewhat unstable in the family, loving family, but, you know, unstable in certain ways, and church was just not part of their pattern. But then they made a move, and they moved into a neighborhood, and next door to them was a family with a, another young boy, same age, and they became fast friends. 
And the family that they had moved in next to were regular church attenders. And so before long, the family and the young boy asked if his new friend could join them in church. And so as he came to the church service for the first time, and some of you have come to remember the first time you're going to a church, it can be somewhat of an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, the young boy was both anxious but curious about what was going to take place and all the things that were uh, going on uh, as they unfolded during the course of the service. As the worship leader asked the people to bow early in the service so that he would lead them in prayer, uh, the young boy for the first time asked his friend, what does that mean? And his friend in his own way expressed that bowing is a, a way of showing reverence to God. The holiness of God is too great to be seen. And so we bow before him as an act of, of humility and as an act of adoration and of worship. A little bit later, while people were standing and singing, he looked around and he saw some people with their hands raised above their heads. And he points and said, what does that mean? And his friend said, well, that's an expression of praise. Some people praise God not only with their lips, but also with uh, the way that they posture themselves before him. And lifting their hands toward heaven is, a, is, is an act of praise. And through each of the elements of the service, he was asking essentially the same question. What does that mean? What does that mean? And then when they came time for the minister to speak, uh, the minister, after having prayed, he took off his watch in a very conspicuous way, put it on the front top of the pulpit, and the boy whispered over, what does that mean? And his friend said, absolutely nothing. Well, for the writer of the book of Hebrews, time does seem to be something that matters. For 11 chapters, he has masterfully touched on some of the most important themes in redemptive history. And he has shown that in each one of them, that these things are uh, pointers to Jesus. They are, uh, they, each one of them uh, was designed by God, both for their purpose uh, in God's history, and at the same time, to remind people of the promised Messiah who would one day come, of whom all of these things were but a foreshadow. And in each one of these things, the writer of Hebrews concludes, these things are glorious, but Jesus is even better. And so he began with the angels and said, you like angels? I mean, you're amazed and fascinated with angels? Well, and you ought to be. Angels are awesome. They're not the fat little cherubs that you see on top of your Christmas tree. But as glorious as they are, Jesus is better. You respect Moses, as you should. He's the deliverer of his people. But Jesus is the deliverer of peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. And even as John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. You recognize the need of sacrifice. The word in the scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so you recognize the importance of the sacrificial system and the sacrifices that were offered in order that the, we would recognize the, the, the importance that sin leads to death and the blood must be shed. And the sacrificial system was put in place and was in, incredibly significant. And yet the writer of Hebrews reminds us Jesus is the better sacrifice because he doesn't offer an animal, he offers himself. And he doesn't offer the sacrifice over and over and over. He is the promised sacrifice, the spotless lamb that was promised that would be sacrificed and offered once for all time. 
and you may admire the priesthood, recognizing that God who is holy and we need a mediator between God and us. And, and that was the purpose of the priesthood, sometimes faithful, sometimes not so faithful. And the writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus is the better priest. For he doesn't just offer a sacrifice, but he offers himself. That he is the perfect sacrifice that was offered once for all, paid the penalty for all of our sin in Jesus Christ through trusting in him and God's gift of him. All of our sin has been pardoned. And not only has it been pardoned, but we have been declared righteous because we've been credited with his character, his record. And everything, therefore, is paid in full. And over and over and over again, the, the writer of Hebrews deals with these important redemptive themes for, for 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he makes a, a shift and he begins to apply these foundational doctrines, the, this foundational truth, and, and show how it, it shapes our lives. But now here in, in Hebrews chapter 13, it, it's almost as if the writer glanced at his watch and realized, oh, I got a lot of things I want to talk about and time is kind of running out. The attention span is, I guess, short. I mean, I could write a book, but I just wrote a letter. And, and, uh, and so he he's, seems to be concerned with the time. And what he does here is, I like the way that um, New Testament scholar William Lane puts it, in the concluding portion of this sermon or his sermonic letter, uh, the preacher brings together a collection of mandates for pilgrims. He recognizes the need to remind his friends of certain elementary virtues. And so that's what he's doing here. And, and through this chapter, beginning in verse 1 and, and really up and through verse 19, he, he kind of just throws out this, this series of instructions, of ways that we are to live our lives because of all of the truths that he has already expressed, that he has shown us. Now, I found it interesting that um, the, the commentator uh, used the word pilgrims here, because in, in that one word, he kind of surmises, uh, or he, he kind of uh, summarizes the, the people and reminds us that the writer of the Hebrews is not just writing this letter of theology and now application, but he's writing it to a people. And the word pilgrim kind of indicates people who are on a journey, people who are unsettled in a certain way, but at the same time steadfast in, in their direction and what they're doing. And that would be a good description of the, the people who were the original recipients of this letter. The writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of Christians, believers, all of whom had Hebrew heritage. Every one of them were, were Jewish believers. He was writing to them at a time in history, most likely in Rome, but again, not certain of that, but certainly in the Roman authority, at a time of incredible persecution against not only Jewish people, but even more so against those who had become the followers of this new, this seemingly weird way, followers of Jesus Christ, the one whom had been executed and then Rumor had been, and a lot of evidence seemed to suggest, had been resurrected. And the Roman government uh, began to crack down on the Christians. And so these believers, uh, though having been exposed to the, the reality of Christ's resurrection and all the benefits that belong to those who are resting in him, things got hard. They were losing their jobs. They were having their property seized. 
they were being arrested. And on top of that, because some of their families had not come to the conclusion that Jesus had been the promised Messiah, some of them were experiencing the rejection even of their family and the friends with whom they had grown up with. Because while they still loved their family and they still appreciated the old ways, they were putting their trust in this one, this Jesus. And it was bringing them trouble. And as normal people, when the hardship and the difficulty started coming, they began to recoil. Think of how can we avoid having this kind of persecution? What's in it for me? And many of the believers had fallen away. Many of those who had at least professed to be believers, they had kind of gone back into the old ways. At least if they go back to the the persecution wouldn't be as intense at at that point in history. Uh, By the Judaism was more accepted than this new Christianity. Others recognizing that they they can't go back fully because they they don't want to give up uh, what they understand to be true in Jesus Christ. They thought maybe they could kind of blend or go back and practice the old ways and and still trust in, in Jesus Christ. But either way, they were drifting and in danger of rejecting a faith. And the writer of Hebrews throughout here is reminding them, look, once you have come to Christ, you you can't go back. Because to go back, to reject him entirely, or even to try to, you know, synthesize the, the faith of Christ with the practice of the old way is to turn your back and to reject the grace that God has given in Jesus Christ. And to reject it is to reject all of the promises and all of the benefits. And and so the writer of Hebrews here is speaking to those people, and he's speaking to us through those people, because while we, at least in our particular context, are not subject to intense persecution, we understand what it is to be rejected. We understand uh, what it is to fear. We understand perhaps what it is to, uh, to lose out because of our unwillingness to to compromise on certain points. But we should also understand the temptation. And so the writer of Hebrews is giving to them and giving to us through them uh, a, a list of important characteristics of life that we are to make sure that we continue to cultivate. We see in this particular passage, these verses one through six, three important characteristics, four expressions, but three characteristics that we can outline in this way. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, be loving, be pure, and be content. And the reason that he's emphasizing these, it's not that these are the only things that are expected of believers. There are many, many th- characteristics that are consistent to, to, for, uh, uh, with the faith, the ways that we are to live our lives, to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. But these particular things are often among the first things that are compromised when difficulty comes our way. And he begins by saying, first, you know, be caring, be loving. And, and we see that in, in verse uh, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Now, as you may know, that the, there is more than one word in the Greek for love. We only have the one. You know, you love chocolate, you love your wife, you love your newborn baby. Well, it's one or the same. So open subject to the interpreter as to which one you love the most. But in the Greek, it's not so. 
And here the word that is used is Philadelphia, which should be easy to remember because I know that when the city of Philadelphia comes to mind, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is, what a loving place, right? I mean, um, as a native Philadelphian. um, But the word is Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. It's the interactive, it's the relational kind of love. In one sense, it's reciprocal. Uh, because it's, it is a relationship. You, you love, you give, and, and because you love and you give in a relationship, you experience. Even if you only experience the, the joy of loving the other person, uh, there is a brotherly love. And because it's a brotherly love, because it's a relational love, there are certain characteristics, there are certain expressions of it. It's not just the feeling, but it's the way that you live that out. And the writer of Hebrews here is saying, let brotherly love continue. And that's the foundation of it, that love. It's a, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ, who is our brother, who became like us in order that he would express love and provide for us and not only uh, provide for us ultimately salvation, but provide to us for our, our daily need. He's the one who created the earth. He's the one that, uh, that, that sustains all things. As Christ has been a brother to us and we entered into relationship with him, he says that regardless of the circumstances and talking to people who are experiencing persecution, fear, temptation to kind of shrink away, to compromise, slow down. He's saying, look, whatever is going on, one thing that you need to continue is the practice of brotherly love. And he lifts here two ways in which brotherly love are to be expressed, and yet because of the fear, because of the uh, fear of rejection, might have been dying down some in the church at that time. He says, first, practice hospitality, and makes a note even with strangers. And then second, he says, show compassion for the prisoners and for the oppressed. All of, Both of these things are are. are characteristic of the expression of brotherly love. It's the, it's the caring for the people who are around us. And he begins with the, with the continue to show hospitality. Uh, and uh, as he's writing them, or he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. New Testament commentator William Lane says this, which is kind of helpful perspective for us to understand why he, he's writing it this way. A commitment to hospitality was a crucial, of, of in crucial importance to the success of the early Christian missions. Christian preachers and teachers who traveled from one center to the next depended upon the openness of Christian homes for shelter during the night and the provision of food for the next day's labor. And, and so he's, he, he's speaking because as the gospel was spreading throughout the world, the way that it spread in that time, the, those who would be missionaries to the communities where the gospel had not yet taken root, uh, the Motel 6 didn't leave the light on. It didn't exist. There weren't the hotels. It wasn't the way, places that you could kind of just check in and, and, and go. And, and so when the missionaries would go, the only way they were able to be sustained for a time, the only way they were able to be sheltered was if other believers would open their homes to them. And they would stay for them for the time during their, their ministry. They would develop relationships with them. Sometimes the homes would become the centers where uh, they, they would invite people in and, the, and the, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel would be shared. Uh, but the, those who were willing to share, express hospitality, even to these people who they had probably not yet met before, they were expressing hospitality 
to strangers. They were housing them. They were making sure that they were fed. They were giving them the provision for the food to get them from this center to the next center. All of that was dependent upon hospitality of the believers. And yet at a time of persecution, when people, particularly the big brother, would recognize that you are part of this, this group, you never knew who you were able to trust. On top of that, you weren't sure that you wanted to be noted as the one who was housing these people. In other words, if you're known by the company you keep and the person coming in is known to be a missionary for this Jesus person, if they're staying with you, it's a pretty good indication that you belong to that group as well. And so if they're going to reject and persecute that one, then you're going to get on that list as well. On top of that, it's terrorism is not something that is as a new invention. And so being stealthy in their terrorism, it was not unknown for some of those who were trying to kind of figure out who were in this new group, send people under the guise. And so it's quite possible you would say, sure, I'm willing to bring somebody in, and the person who's coming in would be the person who would rat you out. Therefore, you would become subject to this persecution. Whether that was likely to happen or not, it was a very real possibility, and people began to react to that. And think about how you would deal with that. I mean, are you going to bring somebody into your home that's only going to have you arrested, beaten, perhaps even killed? Are you going to bring somebody into your home who might be a threat to your family? Are you going to bring somebody who's into your home who is going to be a threat to your comfort and to your way of life? We'd be very, very hesitant to do that. And so we understand why the people might have been hesitant to be showing hospitality at this time. But the writer of Hebrews was saying, look, you you need to be very clear uh, and continue this practice. Demonstrate love. And and he gives a, a reason for it that really is fascinating to a number of people because, you know, sometimes... You might, in the past, somebody has entertained angels unaware. Now, he's making a reference to, particularly to uh, Genesis 18, when Abram entertained the three angels. He'd come and he recognized they were sent from God and he honored them. He brought them into the home. Story doesn't go very well. Uh, You can read it for yourself on that. But there is at least history. It has happened in the past that God has sent his angels and uh, somebody has brought them into the home and had, on, had honored them and then only later found out, wow, they, they, they were angels. And so if it's been done once, it could be done again. Now, I, I don't think that the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you exercise hospitality, expect them to be angels. God may or he may not. Just because he's done it once doesn't mean that he's going to do it. But the writer of Hebrews thought it was at least important to note that I, you by entertaining, by, by hosting hospitality, even of those that you don't know, maybe blessing those who are bringing a blessing to God and who may bring a blessing to you. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and, and he tells us that we are to continue in showing hospitality. It seems to be understood that people are going to hang out with their friends and their family. But he's saying that that hospitality should be extended even to strangers, particularly within the household. But uh, New Testament commentator Simon Kistemacher points out with the the lack of the definite article here, he, he doesn't say our strangers, our family. And so hospitality is not limited to only believers, but it is a way in which we engage the neighbors. It's a way that the gospel continues to strike. It's a way to build friendships, a way to build relationships. It's a way in which the work of Christ in you becomes evident to those who are around. And 
And then he also says that we are to be a people who have compassion for the prisoners and for the oppressed. So we see in verse uh, 3 further, remember those who are in prison as if as those uh, and, and those who are mistreated. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Compassion, feeling what they feel. Remember those who are mistreated, those who are oppressed, since you are also part of the body. In Christ we are made one body, and if one part of the body is hurting, the entire body is hurting. And the writer of Hebrews has acknowledged many of you may be hurting. There are people, many, many people who are hurting. But brotherly love expresses itself, one, in hospitality, but also concern, compassion, feeling, action for those who are in need. Now, in one sense, this is an encouragement to engage in prison ministries, which are very uh, needed as opportunities for evangelism and, and to encourage those who either uh, became Christians while in prison or perhaps who are Christians uh, even before they go into prison, but in their brokenness and their foolishness have done something that, to uh, break the law and get into prison. But in particular, if you here, under the context, are those who are in prison, those who are oppressed, those who are mistreated, not because they have violated the law at some point in time, but a particular focus is those who are imprisoned and those who are mistreated because they are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that experience is far from, uh, common, uh, far from uh, our own experience. It is not our expectation and probably not even a realistic fear for most of us. But I think that the Holy Spirit and, and, and the writer of Hebrews would have us be aware that it is an incredibly and tragic common experience throughout the world. According to the World Watch List, which is published by Open Doors, there are more than 360 million Christians who suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. That's not in history. That's now. One in seven Christians are persecuted worldwide. One in five Christians are persecuted in Africa. Two in five Christians are persecuted in Asia. In 2022 alone, 5,898 Christians were murdered. 5,110 churches were attacked. 6,175 Christians were arrested and detained around the world. This is a common experience throughout the world, but it doesn't get a lot of airplay on our news, and frankly, it doesn't get talked about much in our churches either. But this is a very real experience for believers around the world. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, demonstrate brother love, care. In the most foundational way is being aware, and then support through prayer and things that we're able to do. But we can't do any of those things if we are not aware at all. Now, a few of them do make headlines. You may have heard of Pastor Andrew Brunson a couple of years ago who was arrested in, in 2016 in, in Turkey, uh, falsely accused of trying to overthrow the, the Turkish government. He is fortunately out, and he is uh, back in the States, and 
um, and is uh, sharing both his experience, but even more so, uh, he continues to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's written a memoir, and it's a worthwhile write. Some of you are familiar with uh, Pastor Wang Yi of the Early Rain Covenant Church, who was arrested in December 2018 in China. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Those may seem to be far from home, but you may have read uh, about um, uh, the, the English minister, 71-year-old man uh, named John Sherwood. He was arrested in April of 2021, led away in handcuffs because he was preaching the Bible. He read the passage of the Bible about marriage as God has designed it and was accused, charged, and led off because he had read it. hate speech is what he was charged with. Even closer to home, just last year in February of 2022, Reverend Arthur Pulowski, a Canadian pastor, uh, was asked by a bunch of truckers uh, who had a convoy, and they wanted to have a worship service. Uh, and they held a worship service in Alberta near the Montana border. He preached the gospel to this group, and he was arrested for uh, creating problems because he was promoting hate speech by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Canada. The service was only a few miles from the United States. And my point is not to kind of worry you and create a frenzy in saying that it's coming our way. But what I am saying is it's not as far away as that many of us may think, and it is far more common and far more prevalent than most of us are aware of. And it's important that we are aware of that because this is what we are being called to. We are to have compassion for those who are in prison, those who are mistreated, those who are suffering. And if we have compassion for those who are around, then we see it in much more subtle terms of those who are around us. And we're to demonstrate that being reminded of what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it for me. In other words, Jesus is identifying in a radical way with the poor and saying that when we minister to those who are oppressed, those who are persecuted, those who are imprisoned, when we visit those in prison, each time that we are engaged in that is as if we are ministering to him. You want to minister to angels unaware? Fine. This is even cooler. By compassion, by caring for those who are in need, those who are hurting, Jesus is saying it's like doing it for me. Before I move on, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't note what I hadn't really wasn't even thinking about in this term, but Bible scholar Raymond Brown made this important notation as well. We also need to be reminded that our own neighbors may be suffering from other forms of imprisonment, less stark, but no less, no less distressing. For instance, many elderly people are desperately cut off and they can't get out. They can't go anywhere. And so if not, I encourage you to sign up and volunteer 
at least be praying for the ministry that we have among the elderly who are at Consulate Center. I'm sure Todd Lins would welcome your inquiries and your volunteering as well. But the need of people who are isolated, who are trapped, are all around us. And as those who have been set free from the bondage of our own sin, the Holy Spirit through the writer of the Hebrews is saying, now be God's agents to bring encouragement and freedom to those who are around you. The first virtue, be caring, brotherly love. The second virtue is be pure. And we see that in verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. One of my seminary professors was also a noted commentator, Simon Kistemacher. He says this, when marriage is honored in the home, Love emanates to society in numerous ways. For this reason, the author of Hebrews stresses the necessity of maintaining the sanctity of married life. And he goes on, he says, in the New Testament, almost every writer discusses marriage because a stable marriage is a building block to the structure of society. And so over and over and over again, we see the scriptures speaking about the importance of marriage as a foundation, and not only for the future, but for uh, uh, the present generation and the culture. And the scripture is very clear in having a distinct marriage and sexual ethic. It is distinct uh, Judeo-Christian that is different than other religions and different from the culture, certainly, that we live in. The culture that we presently live in would probably be shaped more by a what call a neo-pagan ethic of marriage and sexuality. And they tend to focus in what I would call reduce uh, the sexual ethic and then related to it, marriage. And those two things go together in, in one of two ways, either animalistic. In other words, it's just biology. So what's the big deal? Or just assuming sexuality is... Recreational. But God throughout the scripture has said that he has created marriage for a specific reason. Well, for multiple reasons. He's created in, in one because it is a founding stone of a, a stable society. Strong marriages produce strong families. Strong families produce strong children. Strong children produce good, better citizens. Better citizens are better in their community. Better in their community. Better communities produce a better state. Better state. Better country. Better better world. It is a foundation, and one of the ways to destabilize the world in order to uh, is to uh, erode marriage and family. And so one of the purposes, one of the reasons that God established it is this is the way that He's ordered. This is the way that things work. Everything works best if we do it this way. God created marriage and sexuality for another reason, for the joy of the two who are partners in it. And then the writer of Hebrews also, a writer of uh, Paul in, in Ephesians tells us this, God created marriage, and I would say an ultimate reason, is not only so that we would have the joy of the partnership, the completeness that comes uh, in, 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 in a union, 
because he says it's a mystery that helps us to understand the relationship of Christ with the church, his bride. In other words, a healthy, stable, committed marriage helps us to understand the passion, the intensity, the faithfulness with which Jesus relates to his people. And for that reason, it should never be destabilized. I would say this, and I I know I'm not really stepping into dangerous waters, at least not in this place, but it's important to be said so that it is said because it's, it's being a mistake. But God is the one who created marriage. And God is the one who's designed marriage. And because God created and because God designed it, it's God's place to be able to regulate the way that marriage is to be run. And God is very clear in the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, that marriage is designed between one man, one woman, period. Marriage is to be an everlasting commitment that shouldn't just so easily be thrown away or broken because I'm not feeling fulfilled. Or it looks like I think I can enter the transfer portal and enter into a better situation, get a better deal. That's not the way we would want Jesus to relate to us. It's therefore not the way that we are to relate to one another. And therefore our marriages are a reflection of the world of what Christ has done. And when we so easily break them, which are done in the church, we're testifying to the world that there's no security whatsoever. God doesn't care. The writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, you're, you need to be pure. One marriage needs to be held in high honor, not only by those who are in marriage, but even those who are not yet married or are not married, to recognize that whether or not one ever enters into marriage, marriage itself is to be recognized as God's gift and to be held with honor because God has blessed it and now, just as a side note, for those who are single and are not married, and the scripture is very clear elsewhere, and I don't have every one of these are worth study. I actually made a note. I think I'm coming back some point to do a whole series on this. Um, oops, uh, the young boy uh, is telling me right now um, that my, my watch means nothing at all. So anyway, we're not doing a series. Um, But I'm afraid the inconsistency with the church, within the church, and the evangelical church is sending a message to a generation that is rising right now is, you know, we say one thing and we do another. And so let me just kind of cut to this, the number of two things. One is the commitment is not only to hold it in high honor, but two is to refrain from anything that erodes the effectiveness and the importance of that. Uh, And there are many, many things that are involved that are contrary to the way that God has designed uh, marriage uh, to, to be. It means that not only... Uh, avoiding and staying away from all extramarital or outside of marriage uh, relationships. It, it also is an indictment about pornography, which erodes the relationship. It says, look, that doesn't, that, that defiles the, the marriage and defiles and, and, and makes it more difficult. The whole idea of no fault divorce. Now, the scripture does say that there, there's sadly reasons and there's basis for divorce and they happen, but they, we have bought into a culture that says otherwise. But most specifically, the thing I think that would be appropriate to say to a church like ours and within our denomination is this. 
it is quite possible to have a high view of marriage and high commitment to marriage and stand for and vote for and lobby for all of the legislations of marriage and at the same time neglect your own. Unfortunately, ministers have been doing this for generations. And so what I would say to you is if you're going to hold marriage in high honor, start with your own. May that be an ethic that we have in the church. Now, we understand, as the the writer of Hebrews is writing, because when the world um, has a different ethic and they want to signal the the fact that there's a different ethic for Christians, sometimes holding to that ethic signals that who you belong to. And in some parts of the world, if that signals who you belong to, then you might experience persecution. In our own context, we are seeing generations rising up who, uh, because they're not participating in things that are deviant from the way that God has expressed it, uh, they're accused of being prudish, they're accused of not being in touch, they're accused of any number of things, and, and nobody wants to be rejected. Think about the rising generation, whether college students or, or teenagers right now, and, and think about the way that churches in general deal with this issue of, of marriage. They're being they're living in the risk of being rejected if they were to conform to the ethic which we tell them they should embrace. And then they look at the church and see that we're not even consistent with it. So why should they bother embracing it? One, they don't know whether we believe it. And two, why should they suffer for something that we so so easily discard? The writer of Hebrews is very clear to us, regardless of the circumstances, whether facing persecution or whether times of peace, a priority of marriage and the purity is a vital. The final ethic that we see the writer of Hebrews speaking to is telling us to be content. We see that in verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, I need to be clear. This is not a prohibition against wealth. This is not a discouragement of a healthy ambition or or being wise towards success. This is an invitation to the freedom that comes and the joy that comes with contentment, which is something that the love of money cannot purchase or produce no matter how much it promises. Biblically speaking, it is not true that money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Now, we think about that for just a moment. I don't know anybody who just loves money for the sake of money, do they? I mean, maybe there's somebody that that gets a dollar bill and says, wow, look at the artistry on this thing. Or really, you know, the the sculpture of that coin is, is impressive. Maybe, but few people I know fall in that category. And I suspect those who do probably need counseling. But it um, seems like there's better art elsewhere. It's not the love of money, because nobody loves money for money's sake. Money is loved for what it promises and even what it provides. And we need to be very careful of that. Because what money promises is security, it promises power, and it promises independence. Now, all of those things, at least initially, sound good to me. The question, you know, what would I do with power and what would I do with my independence? But we're not designed, certainly not for the independence. But without even going into those things for a moment, I'll touch on that here in a moment, one of the things that we need to recognize is that the one thing that money cannot provide is 
contentment. And if you don't have contentment, then none of the other things are going to satisfy you either. Many of you probably heard the story before, but J.D. Rockefeller was one time asked in an interview, how much is enough? And I can't remember what percentage of the national, you know, how much he had of the, of the of total wealth. And I know it's dangerous in this town to talk about the Rockefellers because most of us wouldn't live here if they didn't have all that money. But for the sake of the illustration, and is this, he was asked, how much is enough? His response was just a little bit more. In other words, here's a guy who had everything, more than we can imagine, was benevolent with a lot of it. But even with all that, he wanted a little bit more. And if he got that little bit more and he continued to get a little bit more, then how much is enough? Well, just a little bit more. No matter how close he felt that he was getting to having this contentment to get satisfaction, which are both necessary to true joy It was outside of his reach because money promises, but it cannot deliver. Even when money delivers what it promises, it doesn't deliver. Because the reason that people want independence, the reason that people want power, the reason that people want security, is because we believe that those things will give us contentment and joy. Because if you have contentment and joy, what do you care whether you have the security and whether you have the power and the authority? Because you have what everybody wants. But money promises cannot deliver. But God himself, even as we see it written here, is be content because God has said, I will never leave you from or forsake you. We'll be able to, to rest in him. And so I think that our attitude about money should probably be very similar to what John Wesley said, which is to make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. In other words, money becomes a commodity. Money becomes a means that might give you enjoyment, might bless other people, but we don't live for the money itself. We live for the contentment, for the joy, which actually comes only in and through and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Because I need to wrap up, I'm just going to kind of move to this. One of the things that you notice here is that money, security, even just the whole idea of refraining from these virtues because of the fear of persecution, all of them are for the sake of feeling secure, for the feeling of, okay, if I'm not being persecuted, then I'll be happy, I'll be contented, or I'll be safe. All of these things get neglected when we're trying to provide for ourselves something that we actually have been promised and can only be given by God. Money particularly is the one that says it's independence. The others that we don't participate is because comfort or ease or whatever it is that we think is, is going to meet our needs. We, we want to be independent. And God has not designed us for that. He's designed us to be in constant dependence upon him. And over and over we're told that we find our greatest joy in him because every blessing is found not just from him, but in Christ. And so the final words are the words that I want to read here as I I wrap up. Because God has promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can find everything we need in the one that he sent in Jesus Christ. So that our response would be, as the writer here says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do do to me? Lord, shape our minds, our understanding. Give us hearts that are like your own. May these virtues be embraced. May they shape us and be expressed in all ways that honor you 
bring blessing to our neighbor and contentment to us. We thank you for giving them to us in Christ. And now pray that your spirits would shape us, enabling us to embrace and experience them in him. Now and each day we live. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.